Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. Going through the book of James, and each of us has a choice to live one of two ways. I'm speaking out of experience with this, so let's put the first, let's put the first sentence up, and that is, we can live in the cycle of adrenaline and exhaustion from relentless activity without spiritual discernment or power. That's the first option for how we can live. You know when you're, you're feeling fresh and rested and you're feeling very creative or you're, you're really motivated, you have this moment where you're really motivated and you get all these ideas of stuff that you wanna do in life and you're just, you're, you, you have all these ideas and you decide to do them. But as you begin to do these ideas, you get overwhelmed and exhausted and like, oh man, I'm living off of the adrenaline of that moment when I had all these great ideas, but now the adrenaline's not there and I'm just exhausted and I'm realizing that I made a ton of commitments that I don't want to do half of them. That is like a cycle that is human nature. And you can choose to live off of the adrenaline for a while until you get exhausted and then you, find, you quit half the things and you get rejuvenated and then you get more ideas and you want to do that and then you get exhausted again and your life is just going to be like this continually, this up and down because you're doing it in your own strength, your own energy instead of God's. Or you can do life this way. You can entrust yourself to God's leading to only do those things he's calling you to do and to do those things by faith which activates his power in and through us. So you can learn to discern what is it that God is actually inviting me into. So it's, not, it's more than just, I have a great idea and I got to do this. That's adrenaline. It's discernment. Discernment is a quality of spiritual wisdom where you're learning to hear, to recognize the voice of Jesus as he guides you step by step through your life. When we learn to live in partnership with God by faith, our life is full. It's not like we do less things. Our life is full, but our hearts aren't busy. Busyness is more a state of heart than it is a state of your calendar. A full life means that there's lots of meaningful interactions throughout the day. It means you have meaningful touch points with people throughout the day. It means that God is using you to minister to and to care for the person in front of you at that moment. And your day is filled with times like this. And the things that you do are just a, an excuse to get in front of somebody and to care for them. Your day is full with moments like that. That's a full life. A busy heart is not actually being present to the person in front of you. A busy heart is you're distracted as you're talking to someone. 
A busy heart is you're not looking at them in the eye and asking them follow-up questions. A busy heart is you're half listening to them. A full life that God gives us by faith and through discernment when it comes to, let's say, reading, means that you're reading nourishing books in order to truly comprehend and, ex- and understand them. That's a full life. You're growing in your thinking. You're expanding your ability to think wisely in creativity, cr- uh, creatively through books that you're reading. You're not racing through the books. A full life, as D.A. Carson talks about, cultivating an Eastern style of reading. An Eastern style of reading is reading as though it's a conversation with the book. You're interacting with it. You're writing in the margins. You're not racing through it. That's a full life. A busy heart, as it relates to reading, is making a goal to read 100 books this year. Probably not helpful. Unless you're incredibly gifted, you will have read a lot, and you could probably speak very little of the impact of any one of those books. Fullness speaks to quality. Busyness speaks to quantity. A full life allows you to go to bed at night and sleep soundly knowing that you did enough. Enough meaning you did what God had you to do that day. That's a full life. A busy heart leaves you feeling restless like you're never doing enough. And my proposition in this teaching is the only way to live a full life, what Jesus calls an abundant life in John 10.10, is through intelligent, informed, consistent faith in God. In the passage that we're looking at today, James is approaching this same principle, but from the other side. But he's saying the same thing. James is saying today, when you become a Christian, in the Spirit of God, when you put your faith in the work that Christ has done for you to make you his brother or sister, to make you his friend for life, to make you a citizen of his kingdom, when you put your faith in God, the gift that you receive is the Holy Spirit. He makes his home in your soul. And when that happens, he also gives you work to do. And he empowers you for that work. So James is saying, when you become a Christian, you will do good works because God himself is living through your life. You are living like Jesus would if he were you. That's what the Holy Spirit's job is. That's what James is saying. So if you claim to have put your faith in Christ and you don't demonstrate any works of obedience, then it's probably questionable if the Spirit is actually in you, if you actually have a faith that's alive. The people that James is addressing have left out the good works part. They talk about faith, but they talk about faith in a way that means it doesn't actually change you. There's nothing that you do because of your faith in God. And James is saying, no way. If you have put your faith in Christ, you will do good works. You don't do good works in order to become a Christian. You do good works because you are a Christian. So let's jump in. James chapter 2, starting in verse 20. And I've got it up here on, thank you. Man, you're on top of it. 
Do you want to be shown, you foolish person? James is a little rough. He's a little raw. I don't think I'd say it that way. But hey, it's the Bible. I'm not going to argue with it. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Wait a second. Paul literally says that a person is not, in Galatians 2, he says, a person is not justified by works, but by faith alone. And James is now saying, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Well, and Paul's saying a person is not justified by works, but by faith alone. It, they're saying the opposite things. Paul's saying, it's not works, it's faith. James, saying, James is saying, it's not faith, it's works. Does the Bible contradict itself? Is, they're saying opposite things. Is one of them right and one of them wrong? Did they have like this quarrel? And they both said, I'm going to write what I want, and you're going to have your followers, I'm going to have mine, and we're going to see who wins. Does the Bible contradict itself? Because it seems like it does. We have to understand what the word justify means. There's a lot that's been written about this very thing. And this is why probably in the book of James, this is the most confusing, potentially, potentially confusing paragraph or statement. When James says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Because of Paul saying, a person is not justified by works, but by faith alone. Let's dig into this. There's two definitions of justify, and I think this is the ex explanation that makes the most sense. There's two definitions of justify. The first definition of justify is what Paul's referring to. It means to judge, regard, or treat as righteous and worthy of salvation. It's a theological definition. In other words, the definition of justify that Paul is using, he's saying, Here's how you're made right with God. You'll never be good enough. You will never be good enough. Jesus was good enough. You could never endure the punishment for rebellion against the creator of the universe. You could never endure it. Jesus did. And so when you look at what Jesus did and you place your faith in him and you say, I can't endure the punishment that I deserve, Jesus did that for me on the cross. I want to receive the raised, resurrected life of him through his resurrection. I put my faith in him. I trust in his work and not my own. You are now justified by that faith. That's what Paul says. You are judged to be righteous because of Jesus' work. You receive the gift of salvation because of Jesus' work. We agree with Paul. We think he's right. And James does too. 
A pithy statement, an easy way to remember this, is we are saved, we receive salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You will never be good enough. Jesus was. James is using the word justify in a different way, the other definition. He's saying that if that actually happened, if you have put your faith in Christ, if you have been justified, if you have received the gift of salvation, there will be evidence that will demonstrate, show, justify that it's actually happened to you. This definition of justify is to prove or to show. This is what James is referring to when he uses the word justify. Our English vocabulary is too limited to fully capture the different meanings. So the way that we can understand James 2.21 is that Abraham was proving or demonstrating his saving faith by offering up his son. Now James is referring to a story told in Genesis 22. God asks Abraham the father of this spiritual community that is now the kingdom of God, he asks Abraham to offer up his only son, Isaac, as a burnt offering. Now, he's his only son at this point because his other son, Ishmael, had already left. He's out of the picture. So God is saying to Abraham to go to a mountain and offer up his son, Isaac, as a burnt offering. That seems out of character. Because later we see that God drives nations out of their land because they were offering their kids as sacrifices. It doesn't seem right that God is asking him to offer his son as a burnt offering. Especially since in Genesis 17, 19, God says about Isaac, I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. This is weird. And faith sometimes requires us to obey even in spite of what appears to us like an unsolvable tension. Faith asks us to obey when it doesn't make sense. So here we have Abraham. Based on what God has asked him to do in Genesis 22... Abraham knows that God was going to bless the whole world through his son Isaac, which means he needed to have kids. He needed to be alive to have kids. So this is one reality. God's going to bless the whole world through Isaac. The other reality is that God is asking me to offer my son as a burnt offering. How can those two things exist at the same time? The fact that Abraham said, I don't get it, but I trust you and I'll do what you ask. That act of obedience, that act of trust where he was actually following through and gonna do what God asked him to do, right there, his willingness to obey when it didn't make sense was credited to him as righteousness. Why? Because he had faith in God. He trusted God. 
He trusted that God was still going to be able to somehow bless the whole world through his son's prodigy. Or what's, how do you say that word? Prodigy? Someone tell me because I'm not moving on until I get it. Huh? Prodigy? Okay. Prodigy? All right, I'm done. Let's, let's say a prayer here. Lord, thank you so much for... Wait, what is it? Prodigy? Okay. Hey, let's, let's get that part out of the podcast. Make sure that's not in there. Sometimes when I only have one cup of coffee, I, I have trouble saying words. All right. Abraham was justified by his willingness to obey without understanding because it proved that his faith was genuine. Now, of course, God shut it down and he didn't have to sacrifice his son. And later, God's own son walked up a mountain with wood and offered himself as the ultimate sacrifice. But James is saying, see, Abraham was justified by his obedience, by his action. It proved his genuine faith. The old illustration is the guy that's standing um, by the Niagara Falls, and he's going to walk a tightrope. You've heard this. If you've been in church for over 10 years, you've heard this three times. This guy is going to walk a tightrope across Niagara Falls or the Grand Canyon, whichever one you've heard. And he's going to go to the other side. He's going to go to Canada from the United States. He's got a wheelbarrow. And he asks the crowd, do you think I can safely make it across if I fill up this wheelbarrow on this tightrope? Do you think I can make it across to Canada? And everyone in the crowd says, yes, yes, we want to see it. You can do it. You can do it. Everyone believes you can. And then he looks at you and says, get in the wheelbarrow. (laughs) And James is saying, if you don't get in the wheelbarrow, your faith is dead. It doesn't mean anything. Verse 25 and 26 says, And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, I would encourage you, we're not going to talk about the story of Rahab today um, because I don't want this to be an hour sermon, but I would encourage you to read that on your own. It's Joshua 2. It's a fascinating story about a woman who was called faithful because she lied. And it's interesting how Scripture makes positive examples worthy of imitation out of people like prostitutes. Broken, sinful. Jesus loved to do this. It's an interesting story. It's worth your reflection. And that is found in Joshua 2. I want to quickly summarize what we've learned so we can go to the next slide here. Um, And I'm not going to spend... Oh, we didn't cover that yet? Did I? Wait, where are we at? Oh, yeah, that's right. No, you're right, you're right, you're right. So this is is the summary. It's going to be in three statements. The first statement, this is the overarching statement, and then we're going to define what faith and works are. Okay, so this is the overarching summary of what we've learned. I'm with you guys. Relax. 
Genuine faith leads us into works that God has created for us. You can't have genuine faith in God and not have the Spirit of God leading you into things to do. And as we put our faith in him, he enables us to do those works with his wisdom and power. So in other words, God is at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's Philippians 2.13, exactly. God will show you the works to do and then he'll give you the power and the energy and the wisdom to do those works. He does it all. We don't become like automatons that he is just moving us around with. I mean, he uses our personality, our flair, our individuality to do his works, but he powers it. He shows us what to do and tells us how to do it and gives us the strength to do it. Let's define faith because those are two important words in that statement. Faith is a restful confidence in God to provide everything we need as we keep in step with him. If the works that you are doing are done by faith in God, you won't, um, what's the word? You'll be easy to be around. You won't have all this pressure on yourself to do all this stuff and you won't make other people anxious just by being around you. There will be a certain rest when you are doing the works that God calls you to do because it's God's energy working through you. So it's a restful confidence in God to provide. Let's look at works. Works is helpful acts of love that God created us to do which require our discernment and faith. Or you could just say loving stuff that God asks us to do throughout our day. Ways to love and serve others. But we do it by discerning to make sure it's actually what he's asking us to do. And we do it by faith for him to provide everything we need to do well. Um, before we hit the application, there is in the back when you're leaving, the bulletin board on the right, there is our autumn prayer. Our autumn prayer is a prayer that we are committing as individuals to pray every morning through the end of November. And the reason I'm bringing this autumn prayer up is because it fits perfectly with what we're talking about this morning. The autumn prayer is to designed to begin to give you vocabulary and language to learn how to discern what God is inviting you to do and then to learn how to do those things in his strength, in his power, in his wisdom. So the way that you grow in discernment is prayer. So I would, there's a hundred copies out there. Bree made it look really nice. We put it on cardstock. And if you need another copy or if you want a really pretty copy of it, grab one of those as you're leaving it's on the bulletin board and begin to pray that every day. And it will do wonders. I've already heard stories from many of you that that prayer is putting in some work. All right, let's finish with some application. There's two things we need to discern in everything that we do. All right, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is the end of the teaching. This is where you actually take this into your life 
and me into mine, two things we need to discern in everything we do. One, is God calling me to do something about this? Because you will do works, but not every work is for you. Let's emphasize those different words. Is God calling me to do something about this? Or are other people asking me to do something about this? One of the things you just need to get over, and I'm learning this too, and I, a lot of you have talked with me about this, this, is a struggle for a lot of people. One of the things we just need to get over as disciples of Jesus is people-pleasing. We just got to get over it. If you're not disappointing people, you're not being obedient to Christ. Because everybody has ideas of what you should be doing. Everybody will give you their ideas of what you should be doing. And you should say, let me pray. Let me see if that's what God has me to do. Because Jesus might have me partner with you in that. And he might say no. Jesus didn't heal every. I mean, I know that is a popular thing that people say. Everyone that had a need, Jesus met it. No, he didn't. That's just not true. There was a whole town waiting for him to go back and minister to them. And he was out praying and the disciples were like, there's people back there. But Jesus says, I only do what the Father says. He says that other I only do what the, what the Father tells me to do. I only move where he's moving. And the disciples were like, there's a whole town of people back there that need your help, that are waiting for you, that are looking for you. And Jesus said, nah, we're going to the next town. What? But they're hungry. We're going to the next town. You have to be able to disappoint people if you're going to follow Jesus. Because in a very healthy way, Jesus didn't care what you thought. And we have to be there. Is God calling me to do something about this? Or is this something that I just feel like I need to do? I'm made to do this. I want to do this. Is God calling you to do this. There's a way to learn to discern. Just start praying that prayer and he'll begin to teach you how to recognize if it's just you or other people or if it's actually him. What about is God calling me to do something about this? Somebody needs to do something and nobody is so I'm going to do it. Are you sure? Well it'd be a really good thing. It'd be a really helpful thing and I don't see anyone else stepping up to it. Are you sure you're supposed to do something about this? Because just because it's a good thing and every, no one else is doing it doesn't mean you should do it. Maybe that's not supposed to happen yet. Maybe it's not for you to do. Maybe it's someone six weeks that walks into the room and realizes they're perfectly crafted to do this and you're, you just need to learn patience. Maybe you're not the one that's supposed to be handling this particular thing. Is God calling me to do something about this? Maybe he's just opening your eyes to it so you begin to pray. To learn more about it. Maybe you're not supposed to jump into activity to save the day. Maybe you're supposed to ask, God, what are you up to there? I see it. I, I see it. I'm paying attention. Do you want me to do something now? Or do you want me just to begin to pray? It's the first thing we need to learn to discern. The last, the second one is, if so... If he is calling me to do this, how shall, I, how shall I exercise faith in him to provide for me all that I need to do this? 
So he's not just going to show you what to do, he's going to empower you to do it. When God calls you to do something, it always requires faith in him. Moses, I can't lead this people. I'm not a very good speaker. Peter, I can't get out of the boat and walk to you. That would require me walking on water. The disciples, I can't feed thousands of people. We've got a handful of fish and bread. When God calls you to do something, it always requires faith in him. James uses Abraham as our example. I will obey before I understand how you're going to work it out because I have faith that you will indeed work it out. And when he acted, even though it didn't make sense in the moment, it was counted him as righteousness. It proved his faith. It justified him. What's God inviting you to do? It doesn't make sense. How is God inviting you to live, to live in a way that if the Holy Spirit wasn't providing for you, you would be crushed? What's the thing that you're scared to do because you're looking at your own resources and it would never work in your own resources? Are you, li are you living in any way that requires continual faith in God to come through? Or are you able to manage your life in your own strength and your own power? What is God inviting you into that requires faith in him? When you receive Jesus, when you are justified in that you are brought into this living relationship with God forever, he puts his spirit in you and then you begin to do works that justifies or demonstrates that you have caught the real disease. You have the spirit of the living God living in you. It's fun. It's a fun way to live. Let's pray. I like James. Lord, he's much simpler to understand than Paul. Paul, Paul can be tough. <laughs> and sometimes I read Paul and I'm, I'm like, I need a couple professors to help me understand what he's saying, but James just shoots it straight, and it, he's refreshing in a lot of good ways. So thank you for the, the different people, the different personalities, the different life experiences, the different educations that you used to do the work of putting together the living word of God. And thank you that you have works for us to do that are just as essential for your plan in covering the earth with the kingdom of God. You have things that you made, according to Paul in Ephesians, for us to do since before we existed, since before time. You created us, but you also created us things for us to do. So as we put our faith and trust in you in deeper and real ways, Lead us into those things so that we might be an example to others of the type of work you invite us into 
when we put our trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. Check out our website at southsideworcester.com.